March 14, 1912, Carroll County, Virginia. It's a few minutes before 9 a.m. Nestled snugly in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Appalachia, a thick blanket of snow has settled over the small, rural town of Hillsville. All is quiet. Outside of the Carroll County Courthouse, a teenage girl is limping home. Her clothes are soaked with blood, and each step is painful as she trudges over the frozen ground. Above her, rain drizzles from the dark skies. The girl has just fled a terrifying scene. Inside one of the courtrooms, destruction is everywhere. Chairs and tables have been knocked over, shards of glass glisten from smashed windows, abandoned possessions are strewn across the floor, and bullet shells litter every corner. It looks like a war zone. But there's something even more sinister, something that transforms the wreckage into a murder site. Towards the middle of the room lie four bodies, the bodies of a judge, sheriff, attorney, and juror. In one of the corners, a 55-year-old man sits slumped against the wall. He's still alive, but only just. The man writhes in pain, pressing both hands against his pelvis in a desperate attempt to quell the bleeding. A bullet has torn into this man's body and shattered one of his hips. He's too injured to move. His name is Floyd Allen, and he's just played a part in one of the deadliest massacres in Virginia's history. A shooting in the courthouse, which has left four people dead, one fatally wounded, and another seven injured. But why was this horrific massacre carried out? Who could be so ruthless to open fire in the middle of a court trial? These questions will haunt Carroll County for decades and rip apart an entire family. But if the dying words of a witness are to be believed, then the wrong men may have been executed and the real culprit never brought to justice. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Floyd Allen, one of Virginia's most infamous outlaws. It's about a powerful family who considered themselves above justice and a fateful kiss which sparked a chain of violence. It's about a deadly massacre during a criminal trial, a statewide manhunt to find five fugitives, and a deathbed confession given over 50 years later that could explain why this mass murder took place. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions.
now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's hard to believe, but the chain of events that leads to the massacre begins with a night of joyful celebration just two years earlier. When a childish prank goes horribly wrong. It's 1910, Virginia. Carroll County is a rural, mountainous area, situated over 200 miles south of the state's capital. The landscape is wild and rugged, thanks to the impressive Appalachian Mountains that tower above. One of the county's towns, Hillsville, is a friendly, close-knit community where everyone knows each other's names. From within this charming district, there's one family that stands out, the Allens. Extraordinarily wealthy and powerful, the Allens own hundreds of acres of farmland, a successful general store, and some of the county's most expensive properties. Headed by the patriarch, 54-year-old Floyd Allen, they've built quite a reputation for themselves. They're all fierce supporters of the Democratic Party, and rally against any Republicans who dare challenge them. As a result, they have numerous political enemies. But it's not just their politics which cause controversy. The Allens are well known for living outside of the law. Floyd Allen in particular boasts a string of felonies to his name. He's been accused of shooting a man in North Carolina, assaulting a police deputy in Mount Airy, dueling his own cousin, and most recently, injuring a neighbor in a heated dispute over land. Floyd's aggressive temper defines him. His body is covered in 13 different bullet wounds from various feuds, and everyone in town is careful to stay in his good books. But no matter how many crimes Floyd and his family commit, they always seem to evade justice. Police deputies might charge them with a small $10 fine here and there, but none of the Allens have ever faced jail time. They intend to keep it that way. It's a cold December night in 1910. On a large farm in Hillsville, Carroll County, crowds of teenagers are partying through the evening. It's the annual corn shucking event a harvest festival where local girls and boys compete to find and peel the most corn. It promises to be a long evening of drinking, dancing, and celebrating. 
As is often the case with these types of events, Hillsville has its own traditions to uphold. One such ritual is that if a local boy finds a red ear of corn, he's allowed to kiss any girl he likes. Tonight, that lucky boy is 20-year-old Wesley Edwards. Wesley is the nephew of Floyd Allen and has come to the corn shucking with his older brother, 22-year-old Sidna. Perhaps because of his social standing, Wesley thinks he's above the rules and intends to cause trouble with his kiss. He has his eyes on the girlfriend of Will Thomas, another local boy, and one whom Wesley dislikes. And so, under the pale light of the winter moon, Wesley makes his move. He finds Will Thomas's girlfriend and, taking her completely by surprise, he kisses her on the lips. He makes sure to do it in full view of everyone at the party, including her boyfriend. Although she must be shocked and upset by this ambush, Wesley doesn't worry. The kiss has done exactly what he wanted. It's infuriated Will Thomas. However, Wesley doesn't realize just how dangerous his childish prank will be. The one small kiss will trigger a string of shocking events which place Wesley's entire family in jeopardy and haunt Carroll County for decades to come. The morning after the corn shucking, Wesley and Sidna Edwards attend church in Hillsville with their mother. One of their uncles, Garland Allen, is leading the service. But just a few minutes into the ceremony, the church doors fly open and Will Thomas, the boyfriend of the girl Wesley kissed, rushes in. He marches up to Wesley and demands that he meet him outside. Wesley doesn't want to cause a scene during his uncle's service, so he reluctantly obliges and leaves the church. Waiting for Wesley is a group of three teenagers. It's obvious what they plan to do. They're going to make Wesley pay for kissing Will's girlfriend. But Wesley isn't alone. Perhaps suspecting violence, his older brother Sidna has also left the service and now stands next to him daring the other boys to make a move. A few tense seconds pass. Then the Edwards brothers launch their attack and a violent brawl erupts. It isn't long before their shouts and punches attract the attention of the church congregation and the Carroll County police are called to break up the fight. Upon arrival, deputies charge Wesley and Sidna with three separate crimes, disorderly conduct, assault, and disturbance of a public worship service. Although Will Thomas and his friends started the fight, for some reason, the police only choose to prosecute Floyd Allen's nephews. Familiar with the Allen family's reputation, they assume Wesley and Sidna initiated the violence. However, the two brothers have no intention of going to jail. They flee before police get a chance to put handcuffs on them. Jumping on their horses, they ride south in the direction of Mount Airy, North Carolina. But what the boys haven't realized is that Lewis Webb, the sheriff of Carroll County, is smart. There's no way he's going to let them escape justice. As soon as Webb hears they fled Hillsville, he springs into action. He and his team alert North Carolina authorities, quickly draw up extradition papers, and prepare for the boys' imminent arrest. 
Webb knows that Mount Airy is one of the closest North Carolina cities, and he's certain this is where the boys will head. His prediction is correct. After the Edwards brothers arrive, they're met with scores of police deputies. They're taken to the border and handed over to Virginian officials. Wesley and Sidna are placed in handcuffs and their feet are tied together in thick, heavy ropes. Then the boys are secured to the back of the police wagon and driven home to Carroll County. The police wagon trundles along quietly without any trouble from Wesley or Sidna. The boys have perhaps accepted their fate and don't want to do anything rash that could worsen their punishment. But the situation is about to escalate beyond their control. When they enter Carroll County, the police wagon drives right past Floyd Allen. By coincidence, Floyd is riding his horse home at that very moment. When he catches sight of his two young nephews shackled to the back of the wagon, his short temper flares. He can't bear to see them this way, tied up like wild animals, unable to move a muscle. Floyd's anger gets the better of him. He decides to take action. What happens next depends on who you listen to. According to police, Floyd Allen ordered them to untie his nephews. When they refused, he viciously beat them with the barrel of his gun. With the deputies momentarily paralyzed, Floyd untied Wesley and Sidna and took them home on the back of his horse. But the Allens claim a different version of events. They insist that Floyd politely asked for his nephews to be treated better. At this request, the armed deputies threatened him with a gun. Floyd then peacefully disarmed both men and took his nephews home. Although accounts differ on the precise details of the event, both versions agree on one thing. Floyd Allen illegally freed Wesley and Sidna from police custody. The following day, Floyd Allen rides to Hillsville with his two nephews. Perhaps realizing that his actions were illegal, he hands them over to the police. Hastily, Floyd explains that he wasn't trying to help them evade justice, but simply wanted them to be treated better. Wesley is given a 60-day sentence for his involvement in the fight and for running from police, while his brother Sidna receives 30. But the Allen's legal troubles are only just getting started. Despite Floyd's promises that he never intended to break the law, police charge him with assaulting deputies and deliberately freeing prisoners. Characteristically, Floyd disputes these allegations. Police release him on bail and set his trial date for March 12, 1912. It's not clear why there's such a long wait between Floyd's arrest in 1910 and his criminal trial. It's possible that many Carroll County officials are intimidated by Floyd and reluctant to charge him. If this is the case, then their fear is well-founded. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax, now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. While many in the Carroll County justice system are excited about the upcoming trial and long to make Floyd pay, most members of the public are nervous. They're all too familiar with Floyd's temper and aggressive outbursts, so worry he'll react violently if he's found guilty. Their suspicions are not without reason. In the days leading up to the trial, rumors spread through the county that Floyd has sent death threats to witnesses. Perhaps due to this frightening gossip, one of the men who had agreed to testify against Floyd flees Carroll County before the trial. He refuses to give further testimony. Law enforcement are well aware of these worrying rumors and propose two solutions. First, Sheriff Webb encouraged presiding Judge Massey and the entire prosecution team to take loaded guns to the trial. This will allow them to defend themselves in case any violence breaks out. It will also serve as a deterrent if anyone tries to interfere. Next, they recommend that the defendant and spectators be searched for weapons before they're allowed into the courthouse. But totally unaware of the horrors that will unfold, the judge only agrees to the first piece of advice. The trial of Floyd Allen begins on March 12, 1912. He's being charged with assaulting police deputies and deliberately freeing prisoners. Unfortunately for Floyd, the prosecution is led by several of his alleged enemies. William Foster, a Republican politician who's been known to challenge Floyd, acts as the state attorney. His deputy is a man called Dexter Goad, another Republican supporter. As Floyd comes from a family of fiercely loyal Democrats, he considers both men to be prejudiced against him. Over the course of two days, Foster paints Floyd as a violent, aggressive criminal who deserves to be punished. He claims that Floyd physically assaulted the two deputies and deliberately freed his nephews in order to obstruct justice. Using Floyd's lengthy history of violence and slippery habit of evading the law, the prosecution's case is strong. On the other side of the courtroom, Floyd Allen sits with his defense team. They vehemently counter the prosecution's claims and insist that Floyd is innocent. They also mention the fact that Floyd was the one who handed his nephews back to the police. When it's his turn to address the jury, Floyd swears that he never broke the law. Instead, he claims that the two deputies treated the boys in a manner which he thinks should be illegal. Mentioning Deputy Samuels by name, he exclaims, That there Samuels was abusing the boys. 
He had them handcuffed and tied up with a rope. I just can't bear to see anyone drug around. On the evening of Wednesday, March 13th, the jury deliberate their decision. Although they've listened to two days' worth of arguments from both sides, they failed to reach a unanimous verdict. The day's getting late, and they've been debating the case for hours. So Judge Massey closes court for the night. He expects everyone to be back at 8 a.m. the following day, prepared to reach a final decision. The next morning, Thursday, March 14th, is cold and gray. Temperatures haven't risen much above freezing, and the falling rain does little to melt the icy snow. In the Carroll County Court, however, no one is paying any attention to the weather outside. The room is packed with over 100 spectators, including members of Floyd Allen's family. Floyd's brother, Sidna Allen, and his youngest son, Claude, stand in the northeast corner of the courthouse. They're both carrying loaded pistols. To the left of them are Floyd's two nephews, Wesley and Sidna Edwards. These are the two boys Floyd is being accused of freeing. They're also armed. Somewhere in the crowd, Floyd's brother Friel watches on. His gun is concealed beneath his coat. Floyd sits silently at the front with his defense team. Just like his family, he too carries a loaded gun. The only Allen unarmed is Floyd's eldest son, Victor. Sheriff Webb, Attorney Foster, and his assistant Dexter Goad wait nervously for the verdict. They'd all consider it a huge personal victory if the jury were to find Floyd guilty. At precisely 8.30 a.m., the jury returns. Fowler, the jury's foreman, announces his decision to Judge Massey. Floyd Allen has been found guilty as charged. As recommended by the jury, Judge Massey sentences him to one year in prison with an additional $1,000 fine. Any request for bail is denied. At this news, Floyd Allen rises from his bench. Looking straight at Judge Massey, he cries out, If you sentence me on that verdict, I will kill you. The judge barely flinches. He instructs Sheriff Webb to place him in handcuffs. But Floyd has no intention of being taken anywhere. Still standing, he announces to the jury, Gentlemen, I just ain't going. There's a moment's silence. Time freezes as no one dares to move a muscle. Then, the sound of a single bullet cracks through the air. Instantly, the cacophony of gunfire fills the courtroom. Six members of the Allen family point their loaded pistols at the prosecution team and repeatedly take aim. From the other side of the room, Sheriff Webb, Attorney Foster, and his assistant Goad also draw out their weapons and pelt the Allens with bullets. The next 90 seconds are filled with panic, fear, and violence. A total of 57 bullets tear across the room, blasting anyone in their path. Spectators scream in terror and rush towards the doors. They're quickly followed by five members of the Allen family who hasten to make their escape. 
Then, after a minute and a half of bloody war, the massacre stops. The courthouse is almost empty. Five of the Allens are on the run, and four innocent people are dead. But two of the infamous family have been left behind. Their patriarch, Floyd Allen, and his eldest, defenseless son, Victor, have not managed to escape. In the minutes following the massacre, Victor Allen stares around the eerie room in horror. Slumped on the floor next to him are the dead bodies of Judge Massey, Sheriff Webb, Attorney Foster, and the jury's foreman, Fowler. Each man has been fatally shot. There's nothing he can do for them now. But then another body catches Victor's eye. His father, Floyd, lies in the corner of the courtroom, writhing in pain. Victor can tell that he's been seriously wounded and is wavering between life and death. Floyd's pelvis, thigh, and knee have been shattered by bullets. Blood pours freely from his veins. Victor has to get help. He rushes over to Floyd's side and pulls him onto his feet, feeling the crushing weight of his father's injured body as he leans against him. Then before police deputies reach the scene, the two men hobble away to a nearby hotel in Hillsville. It's not clear if Floyd gets medical attention for his extensive injuries. It's possible that the two fugitives want to keep a low profile, and so Victor chooses to treat his father himself. Either way, Floyd miraculously recovers and spends the night in the safety of the hotel. However, morning brings with it a band of police deputies who are swift to arrest the two Allens. Some reports claim Floyd tries to take his own life rather than go to jail, but is unsuccessful. Other than his rumored suicide attempt, Floyd and Victor cooperate with deputies and follow them to the police station. They have no idea of the horrific punishment that awaits. In the weeks following the massacre, Carroll County Police set about bringing the remaining fugitives to justice. At first, their manhunt is effective. Between March 22nd and March 29th, Floyd's youngest son, Claude, his nephew, Sidney Edwards, and his brother, Friel, are discovered hiding in the mountains of Carroll County. But the rest of the family prove far harder to trace. One of Floyd's brothers, Sidna Allen, and his nephew, Wesley, are still at large. No one has any idea where they could be. Exasperated that two members of the family are still evading justice, the governor of Virginia, William Mann, steps in. He contacts the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency. These are a small group of highly skilled private detectives. Mann hopes that, as natives of Virginia, they'll be able to track down the fugitives. But frustratingly, the agents have no more luck finding them than the Carroll County Police did. Over the course of five weeks, the agents trek through Virginia's rugged wilderness, enduring vicious wind and rainstorms as they search the Appalachian Mountains. They put up wanted posters in every town they pass through, offering rewards of $500 for the return of Wesley and $1,000 for Sidna. The two fugitives are wanted dead 
or alive. The Baldwins might be competent professional detectives, but the Allens have the upper hand in this instance. Having grown up in the countryside of Virginia, they know the surrounding scenery like the backs of their hands. What's more, there are plenty of people who are sympathetic to the Allen family and disagree with the outcome of Floyd's trial. Several families are happy to shelter Sidna and Wesley for a few nights, keeping them safe from the detectives. After weeks of running, Sidna and Wesley eventually arrive in Des Moines, Iowa, where they start new lives for themselves. The two men find refuge in a local boarding house and manage to secure temporary employment. They'll live this way for another six months until the Baldwin Felt detectives finally catch up with them. Meanwhile, back in Carroll County, life for the rest of the Allens is falling apart. Three members of the once all-powerful family who prided themselves on evading justice are now facing murder trials. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It's April 30th, 1912. At the Wytheville Courthouse in Virginia, Floyd Allen is on trial once again. This time, he's facing murder charges for the deaths of Judge Massey, Sheriff Webb, William Foster, and Fowler. A fifth name has also been added to the tally. A young woman who was watching the trial got caught up in the crossfire and died from her injuries. Unsurprisingly, though, Floyd is pleading innocent to each murder. He's hoping to be charged with the less severe crime of manslaughter, claiming that he acted out of self-defense. Over the course of the trial, Floyd and his lawyers build a relatively strong case. They capitalize on the fact that the shooting took place in a matter of seconds, making it impossible to know who fired which shots. Importantly, no one can tell who pulled the trigger first. Whoever started the shooting can be charged with murder, but everyone else is free to claim self-defense or manslaughter. And this is exactly what Floyd Allen does. He and his team entertain the possibility that anyone could have fired those first crucial shots. Perhaps one of the many Allens present that day, or maybe even someone from the prosecution team. Seeing as the prosecutors all carried guns in court, this theory is entirely plausible. Floyd Allen tries to convince the jury that Dexter Goad, the assistant attorney, was responsible for firing first. He has no evidence to back up this claim, but believes that Goad always held a vendetta against the Allens and seized his moment to attack in the courtroom. And so, while trying to clear his own name, Floyd attempts to bring down his rival. Floyd hopes to frame Goad so that he himself can once again escape justice. However, the prosecution team doesn't buy Floyd's story for a second. They're convinced of his guilt and build a persuasive case against him. 
Throughout the trial, they construct the narrative that the murders were premeditated by Floyd. According to the prosecutors, the Allens arrived at court with loaded weapons. They expected Floyd to initiate violence if he was convicted. So, when Floyd was found guilty and sentenced to a year in prison, prosecutors believe that he was the first in his family to take out his gun and fire it straight at the judge and jury. If this is true, then Floyd deliberately committed first-degree murder and sparked the deadly massacre, which left five dead. However, the prosecutors don't stop here. They've managed to find several individuals who are willing to testify against Floyd and state that the attack was planned. Their first witness is a traveling salesman called J.E. Kern. He tells the jury that Sidna Allen, one of Floyd's brothers, purchased ammunition from him just days before the trial. Presumably, he bought it with the sole intention of using it in the courthouse. The next witness brought forward is a lawyer from Floyd's previous defense team. He claims that it was Claude Allen, Floyd's youngest son, who drew his gun and fired the first shot. He also states his belief that the attack was premeditated. Although these two witnesses don't necessarily implicate Floyd as the first shooter, they do suggest the Allens planned the attack. Their testimony paints Floyd as a co-conspirator in a murder scheme. Finally, prosecutors invite Dexter Goad to speak, the man Floyd has accused of initiating the shootout. Goad's testimony seems truthful. He voluntarily admits to shooting Floyd in the pelvis, but claims he did not fire the first shot. According to Goad, he saw Floyd reaching into his pocket where his gun was kept, and then heard a shot ring out. It was following this that Goad raised his own gun and fired. The arguments against Floyd are compelling. They leave the jury questioning who to believe. Is it more likely that Dexter Goad, a respected public servant with an honorable reputation, shot Floyd Allen in a room full of witnesses? Or did Floyd, a known outlaw with an aggressive temper, pull the trigger first? On May 18, 1912, the jury returns with their decision. This time, they haven't struggled to reach a unanimous verdict. Convinced by the prosecution's narrative, the jury finds Floyd Allen guilty of first-degree murder. They believe he conspired to kill at least one of his prosecutors and may be responsible for all of the lives lost. His punishment is the death penalty he'll be sent to the electric chair. While the jurors read this damning verdict, Floyd Allen breaks down. Far from the heartless, violent criminal he's been painted as, the 56-year-old man weeps freely. But his sentence is not the end of the Allen family's troubles. With so much devastation caused at their hands, Carroll County will not stop until every single Allen has suffered. Following the death sentence of Floyd Allen in May 1912, his family is ripped apart. Wesley Edwards, the boy whose kiss sparked this tragedy, is sentenced to 27 years in prison. 
his brother also receives lengthy jail time. The rest of the Allens are given varying punishments from 18 to 35 years behind bars. But Carroll County officials don't stop there. Claude Allen, Floyd's youngest son, is charged with the first-degree murder of William Foster and the second-degree murder of Judge Massey. Numerous witnesses claim to have seen Claude fire first. Like his father, he's sent to the electric chair. These unforgiving punishments ensure that the Allens are forever disgraced. The rule of the all-powerful, intimidating family who continuously evaded justice has finally come to an end. In the buildup to Floyd's execution, public favor shifts drastically. Many people in Carroll County view the death penalty as too harsh a punishment and believe Floyd and Claude should be sent to prison like the rest of their family. The wave of public sympathy is so strong that thousands of residents sign a petition in an attempt to commute Floyd and Claude's sentences. But their efforts are all in vain. The governor of Virginia remains unsympathetic to the plight of the Allens and is determined to oversee their capital punishments. So on March 28, 1913, Floyd Allen is put to death. Just 11 minutes later, his son Claude meets the same fate. Following the courthouse massacre of 1912, Carroll County does its best to move forward, to forget this dark chapter from its past. As the years roll by, world wars come and go, as do presidents, and the small rural community adapts to modern American life. But the courthouse massacre of 1912 is never far from anyone's minds. Children are born, and new generations are raised overhearing the hushed, secretive tones and cautious tales of the bloodshed that came to define their community. Between 1922 and 1926, the governor of Virginia pardons four members of the Allen family. Many still consider their punishments too harsh and are relieved at this act of clemency. But if you thought the story of Floyd Allen ended here, you'd be wrong. The date is now 1967. Over 50 years have passed since the massacre, and the Allen family has faded into history. But then, sometime during the year, attention is drawn to the courthouse tragedy once again. Fresh evidence suddenly arises which thrusts Carroll County right back into the limelight. In an affidavit, Two unnamed men claim that they know exactly who started the fatal shooting of 1912. They claim that the top secret information was passed to them by a friend who confessed on his deathbed. His name was Woodson Quessenberry. Their affidavit tells the following story. Woodson Quessenberry grew up in Carroll County, Virginia, and was familiar with the notorious Allens. Like many locals, he feared Floyd for his violent temper and resented him for his ability to evade justice. Some reports speculate that Floyd and Quisenberry had an ongoing feud, although it's not clear what it was about. 
Quessenberry was the deputy clerk in Carroll County. And it so happened that he was assigned to work at Floyd's trial for assault in March, 1912. It was here where Quessenberry's hatred for Floyd came to life. He loaded his pistol with ammunition and took it with him to court. Then, when Floyd Allen stood up and rejected his prison sentence, Quessenberry drew out his gun and fired it straight at the criminal. In the ensuing months, Quessenberry watched as Floyd and his family were subsequently found guilty of murder, sent to prison, and the electric chair for a crime he'd committed. He kept his secret almost to the end until he could live with his guilt no longer. It was on his deathbed when Quessenberry finally admitted that he'd fired the first shot and initiated the fatal courthouse massacre. However, the affidavit has since been heavily disputed. Some reports claim that the two men were paid $25 each to say that Quessenberry admitted to the crime. The Allen's influence is still felt in Carroll County, so there's speculation that the men were bribed by friends who wanted to clear Floyd's name. Others have claimed that the affidavit was simply another attempt to keep the infamous story alive. However, regardless of the controversy surrounding the affidavit, it can never be used in court. You see, the confession wasn't signed or written by Quessenberry, meaning a judge would reject it on the grounds of hearsay. And so the mystery lives on. Was Floyd Allen wrongfully executed for a crime he didn't commit? Or were he and his family really the violent outlaws Carroll County made them out to be? Despite the age of the case, it's still very much alive in Virginia. Museums remember the massacre, various Allen houses are maintained, and it's a popular topic of debate. So long as the mystery remains, there's a chance we may one day find out who fired the first shot on that cold, gray March morning in 1912. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Rupert Maxwell Stewart, an Aboriginal man from Australia. In 1958, Stewart is arrested and charged with the murder of nine-year-old Mary Haddam. At the time, many believe Stewart to be innocent of the crime, and yet he's handed a death sentence. In 2001, the arresting officer, ex-Deputy Sergeant Paul Turner, makes a startling confession about the case. On his deathbed, he admits that he and other officers coerced a confession out of Stewart. Was an innocent man wrongly accused of murder? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.